Welcome to this week's uh, Think Jewish and this week's Torah portion, Parshim Mikates, but it's also going to be Shabbat Hanukkah. So we're going to talk today actually about Hanukkah uh, instead of the Torah portion. The title for today is A Deeper Battle and the subtitle is Light's Distaste for Darkness. Again, Light's Distaste for Darkness. You'll soon see why that subtitle is important. So before we uh, dive straight into the secrets of Hanukkah, I want to just give two interesting details, unusual details about how we celebrate Hanukkah. Let's first start with the Hanukkah prayer. Hanukkah prayer is Al-Hanisim. Al-Hanisim is inserted in your Amida prayer and it's also inserted in your grace after meal. In your prayer over there you say Al-Hanisim for we're actually giving thanks to God for the miracles and everything that took place and then you have a paragraph which we zoom in to exactly what we're thanking God for. What was the miracles of, of Hanukkah that we're thanking God for in this prayer? So in this Alanisim, which actually means and for the miracles, we actually have over there these words. I'm going to read them to you. Rafta es rivam and nikamta es nikmatam. Rafta es rivam, he waged our battle. And Nikamtas Nikmasam, he avenged our revenge. Simply speaking, we say that God fought for us. However, if you look into Rashi, Rashi, there's no Rashi on this prayer. But if you look into Rashi, and you'll see in the Parsha of Pinchas, God uses the same type of terminology. And Pinchas avenged my revenge. Kana eskinasi. And over there Rashi says a little bit of a different meaning. It wasn't that Pinchas stuck up for God. Rather Rashi says the words mean that he avenged the revenge that I was to take. In other words, it's as saying, God saying, I had a responsibility to avenge that Zimri the leader, the prince of the tribe of Shimon, a prince in the tribe of Shimon, actually went and publicly sinned with a Midianite woman. He actually taunted Moses first. So God saying that I, it was my responsibility to have avenged that. And Pinchas avenged that revenge that I was to do. So from those words, Bekana Eskinasi, we're now going to extrapolate how Rashi would interpret this prayer. Raftas Rivam does not mean that God stuck up for us. You messed with my kid and I'm going to beat you up. That's not what it means. Simply speaking, that's what it would mean. But rather, if you look at how Rashi explains the same terminology in the book of Numbers, Bamidba, concerning Pinchas, it means to be saying that the Jews had a responsibility to battle, to wage a certain battle. And because we didn't, God did it for us. So too with the second part of that sentence. Nikamta et nikmatam. We had a responsibility to avenge. And we didn't, and God did it for us. So it seems to be semantics, but it's not. It's not like you mess with the Jews, so I stuck up for the Jews. No. It's the Jews had a responsibility to do something. They didn't do it, and I did it for them. Raftas revum, their battle that they were supposed to wage, and they didn't, I did it for them. Their avenge that they were supposed to avenge for me, or whatever it was, and they didn't, I avenged. So... Now that we understand Rashi's words, Rashi's interpretation, approach to this, we need to understand what was the battle that the Jews were supposed to wage, but they didn't. What was the avenge that they were supposed to do, and they didn't? Question number one. Just on the terminology of that prayer that we stick into that Midah and into our grace after meals for the eight days of Hanukkah. Number one. Question number two. It's not really a question, just a detail, but it's it comes a very big question in Kabbalah. 
So the Mishnah tells us, our sages tells us that where do we place the menorah? We place the menorah in the doorpost. The mezuzah is on the right side and we place the menorah on the left side. Okay? Seems to be very simple. And the, the reason is not that just because the mezuzah is there you don't have room for the menorah. The menorah is pretty low, the mezuzah is pretty high. Why can't you put them both on the same size, same side? And the simple answer is we should be surrounded by mitzvahs. If you have already the mezuzah on the right, so put the menorah on the left. However, in Kabbalah, such a thing doesn't work so easily because everything is detail perfect. So if we're putting the menorah on the left, it's not because the mezuzah beat it to the race to be on the right, so we put the menorah on the left. No, the mezuzah has to be on the right. Even if the commandment of mezuzah would have happened after the story of Hanukkah, the mezuzah belongs on the right and the menorah belongs on the left. Seems to be simple. Okay. Not so simple at all. Why is it not so simple? According to Kabbalah, the left represents evil. Why does the left represent evil? Very simple why. Because in the way the emanations are lined up, revelation, kindness, giving is on the right side. From revelation, face-to-face -face revelation, you can never have a nurturing now, how much less so a creation of evil. The left side is givura, which is strictness, which translates into contraction and concealment. When the divine light is contracted, when the or ein sof is contracted and concealed, which means in simple Kabbalah terms, there's no more a face-to-face -face relationship. I'm not giving me to you. I'm giving an offshoot of me to you. Then the outcome can be that evil can be created and can be nurtured. So therefore in Kabbalah, we talk about the right side is Kiddushah and the left side is obviously the left side in the holy worlds is holy. But that could become a source to evil and thus we call the left side evil. Just to show you how far this goes, a Kohen who's a lefty is not allowed to do his work in the Holy Temple. So when we talk about left being the source of evil, and again, not that left is evil. In the holy world of Atzilut, the emanation of Givurah is as infinite and as holy as the right side emanation of kindness. But because an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot can eventually become so contracted, so concealed, that it can give birth to arrogance, which is evil, therefore already Kabbalah tells you the left side is evil. So therefore now we have to look back at this question. The menorah being lit on the left side is a huge problem and question in Kabbalah. Because the mitzvahs have to come from the right side. So why would they tell us that we have to put the menorah of Hanukkah on the left side? A very unusual teaching. In this teaching that I'm sharing with you from the Rebbe Blessed Memory of 1968, this is the only point that the Rebbe makes about the left side. However, I will share with you that also there's a, a two different questions that the Rebbe asks. Number one, inside and outside. Inside represents unity, holiness. Outside represents multiplicity, complexity, and a disarray. So why do we put the menorah on the outside? We should put it on the inside. Another question asked is that the menorah, especially that it's to remind us of the menorah and the miracle of the menorah in the holy temple, the menorah in the holy temple had to be lit during daylight, not during nighttime. When do you light the menorah? You have to light it after nightfall. Those two questions, by the way, are the exact same theme of the left side. But in my notes, the Rebbe only talks about the left side, so I only ask that question. But realize, left, right is the same like outside, inside, daytime, nighttime. So we see something very unique about the menorah. The menorah seems to be stepping out of the holy zone on all three levels. Okay, so you have the two questions. Question number one was, what is that battle that the Jew was supposed to fight and they didn't fight, so God fought it? Number one. Number two, 
what is this concept of purposely telling us to do a mitzvah on the left side and not on the right side okay so those are the two by way of introduction two concepts we will need to talk about now let's let us dive into what this teaching is the Jewish people from day one God has created this world in a fashion that the Jewish people must wage a battle with this world now why so why do we have to wage a battle we're supposed to be a peaceful religion why is this whole religion based upon a battle that we must embrace with the world and the answer is as follows the purpose why God created this world the desire that God had which led him to create this world according to the mystical teachings is in order for him to make a dwelling place for himself here he should make for himself a dwelling place in this world now what is this world about why does he want a dwelling place here I would assume that the spiritual worlds are just a little bit prettier than here and the answer is because God's desire in creation was nothing about perfection for that he didn't need creation perfection God has without the world but rather God's desire in creation was preciousness now how can you create a scenario where something becomes precious to God and the answer to that question is you need to have freedom of choice angels do not have freedom of choice simply speaking in the Shema Yisrael when we talk about you shall love God with all your heart we say over there a double language Lamed Bet Bet the word heart in Hebrew is Lev yet by humans we use it with a double vet Levav Levav Enosh by angels you never have that and the reason is because by humans you have both inclinations you have the one heart of which is the emotions of the godly soul and you have the other heart which is the emotions of the animalistic soul so angels are perfect but they're not precious because the only thing that becomes precious is when you have freedom of choice to believe in God or not to believe in God then your faith in God is, pre is precious now there's no faith of a human being that's ever to be as perfect as the faith of an angel but that weaker faith of the human being because it's built upon freedom of choice so that little faith that I do have is precious while the perfect absolute faith that the angels have is not perfect it's not precious I'm sorry it's perfect it's not precious so that means in order to create God's desire in creation which is to have a precious home not a perfect home he had to create freedom of choice in order to create freedom of choice you have to have good and evil God's not playing Russian elections you can vote but there's only one candidate no God has to really make two candidates giving you absolute freedom to choose whichever one you want and then because God makes it that way I now can do something precious for God because I absolutely had the power to say no and I said yes or vice versa so creating this dwelling home for God in this world is all about creating a precious home for God in order to create a precious home for God there has to be freedom of choice which means there has to be evil which means there has to be a battle there's going to be a battle within me whether I want to go this way or that way I want to take it a step further in order that this home should be entirely precious that means every iota of this world has to be able to go either good or bad which basically means every single paradigm every single perception every single creation in this world is based upon arrogance and selfishness now I know that sounds like harsh words 
So let's not look at it as evil yet. Let's look at it as very simple. Survival. Survival is ego and arrogance. It's in the genetics of the lion that the gazelle must die so that it can eat and not die. This notion of the lion saying, I have no right to kill anything. Well, if that means I'm going to die, I'm going to die. That doesn't exist. Because my survival has to come first. That's a notion of arrogance. To all the way, that's from the simple notion. But let's take it, at, let's take it up a notch. Let's talk about the world's paradigm of success. Power, fame, it's all about the I. So everything about this world has within it the fingerprint of freedom of choice, which means it must have the paradigm of arrogance and selfishness. I have a right to tell God no. Or to quote Pharaoh, who is this God who I should listen to him? That's the paradigm of this world. And the reason why every single experience and every single iota of creation has that is because if it wouldn't have that, there would be a piece of God's home which isn't precious. If God wants every single speck in his home on this physical world to be precious, then every single iota of this world, every speck, every experience has to be able to go either way. And the fact that mankind chose to go this way and not that way makes it precious. Which, by the way, explains to all of us very clearly why every single technological and medical breakthrough is being used for bad reasons. No matter where you touch, you're going to find people in the world who are using the latest breakthroughs for bad reasons. Because every existence in this world has to be precious. And what makes it precious that we decide to use it for good reasons is the capacity that other people are using it for bad reasons. So now we understand that from the first letter bet of Bereshit, we were set up in a battle. And this is the battle that we're talking about in Al-Hanissim. We're talking about the battle that the Jews did not wage. And now we have to be a little more detailed about what they didn't do. Okay? But now you understand that there is a battle which is the responsibility of us as Jews. Our responsibility is to wage a battle with every single speck of creation which has the freedom of choice to manifest itself as absolute arrogance and selfishness and we should turn it into a transparent vehicle of serving God's will. That's what it all boils down to. Okay? Okay. Now that we understand the notion of the precious home, now we understand that in order to be precious, there has to be freedom of choice. And if this freedom of choice means that there's a battle that needs to be waged, because it could go either way, let's talk about what the process is. The process of the process of making this world a precious home for God, which now you understand the only place in all of this spiritual Kabbalistic universe where God could have a precious home is only right here. Because only the physical earth is the absolute fingerprint of arrogance. Every other world, every spiritual world has a transparency to God. I shared this with you once before. What is the beauty of an atheist? It's a piece of God telling God that God doesn't exist. You can't have that in a spiritual world. You can't have an angel that's an atheist. It just doesn't exist. So the notion of precious is that each and every one of us could be an atheist. And yet we choose not to. And let me share with you. I don't care what kind of religious home you were brought up in. When life hits, and I mean life hits, you ask yourself questions. So for one person, atheism is I don't believe in any God. 
For another person, atheism is that God isn't a good God. For another person, is God is a good God, but me, he doesn't like. We all deal with it, no matter how we're going to deal with this. Freedom of choice is meant to be so that I can be attacked with unholy thoughts, unholy necessities, and then be able to choose because that's, all, that's the only thing that makes it precious. Long before God created Adam, God had beautiful, perfect angels. But that wasn't enough for him because he didn't want perfection. He wanted precious. Okay? So now we understand this battle. Now let's talk about the process of the battle. The process of the battle is made up of two parts. Okay? In chapter 34 to Hillen, we have a verse. We say it every single Shabbat. Sur merah va'asetov shalom v'ratfehu. Sur merah, turn away from evil. A. B. Va'asetov and do good. That is what you and I know as the only two type of mitzvot that we talk about. Mitzvot aseh and mitzvot lota aseh. The 613 mitzvot are, are divided into two categories. Thou shall and thou shall not. There are 365 prohibitions and there are 248 commandments. What is that about? Let's go back to what we talked about. It's all about making God a precious home. In making a precious home, there's two parts. First, you got to clean up the mess, and then you got to build the furniture. So, first you have sur merah, clean up the mess, turn away from evil, the 365 prohibitions, and then you have va'asetov, turn physical objects into beautiful furniture in God's home, i.e. mezuzah. Let's go a little deeper here. So we're saying that step number one is the first part of the battle is that to surmerah. You got to fight evil. And then we said the second part is asetov. Now somehow we're saying that the Jewish people did not fight the fight. So therefore God fought it for them. It was really their fight. What are we talking about? So the explanation given is that the Jewish people did not correctly fight the fight of turn away from evil. And now we have to understand what this means. When the times over there, they didn't turn away from evil. I mean, you're making a big statement. A guy sits and then he has an Avera here and an Avera there. He does some sins. That's it. He didn't turn away from evil. I mean, you got to look at the whole person. It's a huge statement we're saying here. So the Rebbe Blessed Memory explains, no, take it deeper. What is the fight of Surmera turn away. So number one, if you know the history of Hanukkah a little deeper than the stories that usually are printed in the Bashors, the fight of the Jewish people on Hanukkah was not just against the Syrian Greek army. One of the major issues they had was the Hellenist. The Jewish people that completely assimilated and embraced the Greek way of living rather than the Jewish way of living. The gymnasium and all. But let's take it even deeper than that. When the Torah tells you that you have the commandment to clean up evil from this world, if this is to be the precious home of God, God is not looking to live in this world with his enemy. So we need to first clean up the evil, the arrogance, the selfishness. So the simple commandments, the simple 365 commandments of thou shall not is talking about thought, speech, and action. You have certain thoughts you're not allowed to think. You have certain things you're not allowed to say, Lashon Hara. And you have certain things you're not allowed to do. I mean, don't kill, don't steal, yada, 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 yada. Okay? But then we have that it's not just about the thought, speech, and action. Take it a step further it's also about our emotions and our perception. So give me a time out for a moment. I want to step back a second, and then I want to get back to what I'm talking about. We need to have a, a clear understanding. Why do we have to clean up the mess? Why can't we just transform everything through engaging positively? Why do I have to have 
the negative that I have to only shun and push away. If we're going to make this world a precious world for God, then we should take everything and transform it. By the way, not in my notes, but as I'm speaking and looking at your eyes, here's a simple t story you remember. You remember the story of King Saul. King Saul was told to eradicate all of the Amalekis. And what did he do? He didn't kill the king and he brought back the livestock. Why did he bring back the livestock? Samuel asked him, what's going on here? I told you to wipe out everything. And he answered, what greater sacrifice can we bring in the holy temple than taking the Amaleki sheep and turning it into holy flesh? I mean, if it's all about transformation, then this is it. This is the ultimate. And what did King David, what did, what did, I'm um, sorry, what did Samuel the prophet answer um, King Saul? Halo Shmuatov isn't listening better than any transformation. You have a very good thought. One little detail God said not to. But what, why was he wrong? Why did God say not to? He was teaching him a very important lesson. Samuel was teaching King Saul. When it comes to God, you listen. That's number one. Don't be smarter than God. If God said no, then don't tell God, I, I'm going to do even better than you. You said to wipe them out. I'm going to make them holy. God said no is no. But, but the question is a question. Why? Why do we have to eradicate creations? Why do we have to eradicate experiences? Why not have every creation and every experience possible and transform it? So the answer is, to understand this, we need to know a little bit of Kabbalah. How does Kabbalah define evil? So it's called in Kabbalah, the language of evil is, there's two types of evil. There's mundane and there's evil. So there's holy, holy is holy, and then from the language of Kabbalah, any single identity you have other than absolute transparency to God is evil. But within this evil, there's two layers. There's mundane, and then there's real evil. For example, the tribe of Levi, they were not allowed to receive a portion in the land of Israel. Why? Because God said, I am their lot. That means that what? That I don't want the tribe of Levi to be involved in producing oils. I don't want them to be involved in import and export. I don't want them to be involved in agriculture. I don't want them to be involved in precious gems, which is all, by the way, I'm listening to you what other tribes did. Why not? Because they need to be absolutely committed to me. Which means God is saying, zero mundane for the tribe of Levi. Now let's talk about the other 11 tribes. Were they evil? No, they weren't evil, but they were involved with the mundane. They went out to make a living, which is considered mundane, compared to sitting all day in the house of God, serving the God. So mundane isn't evil. So what is it Kabbalistically? Kabbalistically, it's called Klipat Noga. Klipat Noga means husk of light. Husk, a peel, a covering. Husk of light. What does that mean? The definition of holy, mundane, and evil all boils down to the opacity of the husk. If, if there is darkness in the shell, in the vessel, that means that there isn't absolute transparency, it's not holy. Now, if you have the tra that the opacity of the husk is not 100%, that means there is a little bit of transparency which allows the light to shine through, then that becomes mundane. But what happens if the entire vessel, the entire husk covering the light is 100% opacity, which now means that there's 0% transparency, then that's completely impure. That cannot be elevated. Does anyone know how to say forbidden in Hebrew? Anyone know the word? Asur. 
You know what the word asur means in modern day Hebrew also, not just once upon a time. What do you call a prisoner? Asir. The word asir means tied down. The definition of prohibition means that this is tied down into its arrogance. You can't elevate it. So because it's tied down, it cannot be elevated. It is prohibited to the Jew. Because if everything a Jew does is about elevation of the spark, transformation of the creation, if for whatever spiritual reason, this level of arrogance, this level of opacity, which means zero transparency, is that it cannot be elevated, you can't do it. So let's talk. When you go ahead and you make tefillin, there's a law. The hide that you use, the parchment that you use, the sinews that you use as threads, the ingredients of the ink has to all be kosher. Because you cannot make a mitzvah out of something which is tied down. Let's talk about something else you and I know. Simple, a Shabbos table. So you have a Shabbos table and you invite guests. So you made Kiddush, you sang Shalom Aleichem, you're sitting and singing songs, you invited guests, you're doing the mitzvah because you're supposed to eat on Shabbos, and you're saying words of Torah. All of those mitzvahs, it took the mundane and it elevated it into God's world of a precious home. But that cannot be do done with that which is asur, with that which is tied down. And therefore, the reason why you have to have both the positive commandment of engaging and the prohibition of stay back is because anything that could be turned into furniture has a positive commandment. It's not absolutely dark. There's transparency. We can connect with the divinity inside. If we can connect with the divine spark inside, we can elevate it. If we can elevate it, don't waste it. Transform it into part of God's precious world. However, if it's something which is non-kosher, which means that there's zero transparency, if there's zero transparency, you cannot elevate it. You can't connect with the divinity inside. The only thing you can do is say no. Now, I just want you to know that according to Kabbalah, when you have that inner war, I want it, and I say no, that actually weakens the universal balance between evil and good. You've actually weakened the evil. I want to spell this out to you, okay? So, you go by a kosher restaurant. You know that the hamburger is going to be half the size. And it's also going to be extremely high sodium. And it's also triple the price. Right next door, the guy happens to walk out of a wonderful Wendy's. The beautiful aroma comes out. You see the beautiful sign that for $2.99, you're going to get a huge large gulp and a double burger. In, Judea, in a kosher restaurant, you don't get to sit down by the table for that price. Here, you're going to sit down, eat, and leave. And you're really tempted. You're really tempted. And then you have to overcome it and say no. According to Kabbalah, when you overcame the temptation and you said no, you actually had an effect on all the non-kosher that was in Wendy's. Because it came to tempt you and you used it to strengthen your commitment with God. That means that you've weakened evil because instead of evil pulling you away from God, it actually became a diving board which connected you deeper to God. But the bottom line is the only way you can connect with evil is by saying no. You can't transform it into furniture. That's part of the cleaning up. Now that we understand this, we need to understand that when we talk about eliminating the evil, we're not just talking about eliminating actual evil. We're talking about eliminating potential evil. And the only way to eliminate potential evil is not only if I can control my mind, my mouth, and my body, but if I can also change my paradigm.
my emotions. Let me give you a very simple example that unfortunately the world is facing today. Racism. Racism is an outright evil. Now let's talk about racism. So there's a guy who creates racist jokes. There's a guy who would never create a racist joke, but he'll repeat it. Or if not, he'll at least copy paste it, forward it. The person who'll never forward it, but if you tell him the joke, he'll have a good laugh. The person who won't have a good laugh on a racist joke, God forbid, but he'll be fighting to hide a smirk. Then there's the person who'll actually tell you, oh my God, that was really a bad joke. That was racist. But he's okay with it. He took his political stand. That was not right. Okay. But then there's the person whose stomach turns. He's disgusted by a racist joke. He abhors a racist joke. What's the difference? Anyone but the person who abhors and is disgusted by a racist joke, even though in their life racism is dormant, it lurks just beneath the surface. Because if you're not disgusted by it, you're very close to embracing it. It's that simple. So we see that the fight, that war, which God said was your war and you didn't fight it, it wasn't just that you shouldn't think bad thoughts. It isn't just you shouldn't say bad things. It isn't just you shouldn't do bad things. It's actually take it to the right step. I want you to eradicate from my precious home not only the existence of evil, but even the potential of evil. And the only way to eradicate potential of evil is if you actually learn on not just in your garments, which is your thought, speech, and action, but actually your perception and your emotions need to learn to be disgusted and abhor evil. Racism will not be wiped out just because people aren't doing, thinking, or saying racist thoughts. It will only be completely eliminated when people are absolutely disgusted and abhor racism. So the war here is not just do not think, do not say, do not do. It's actually you need to take time to meditate, to concentrate, to change your paradigm and create the right emotions to be disgusted by evil. And that comes through meditation. That comes through real study of God and goodness and to abhor anything against that. Let's put it very simple, the way the Alter Rebbe puts it in Tanya. If I love you, then I'm going to hate the person who's bent on destroying you. It's that simple. The person who tells you, I love you, but I'm sorry, I can't get involved. There's a problem there. Because if they really loved you, if they find out that someone is bent to destroy you, they're going to go to war with that person. So to tell God, I love you, I love holiness, but I'm sorry, God, I can't fight your war. I just don't hate evil. I just don't hate selfishness. I just don't hate racism. Then we're not fighting the war we were supposed to fight for God. Because when it says, Raftas Rivam, that we were supposed to fight this battle and we didn't, it meant that we didn't really take the time to have an absolute disgust in anything that is not just, anything that is not holy, anything that's not pure. Maybe we didn't do it, but we didn't really let ourselves develop that love for God that comes hand in hand with an absolute disgust for the racism or anything else evil that's going on. Okay? So now we have a clear understanding of what the war is really all about. It's not just about evil, it's also about the, ab the abhorrence that we need to have, the animosity that we need to have towards evil. Okay. Now let's talk about something interesting. Mitzvot can never, I said this a moment ago, mitzvot can never engage with that which is impure. Right? We said that. Mitzvot can only engage that which is kosher, which means mundane, 
cows aren't holy, but they're not impure. Done right, you can do a lot of things with a cow that becomes mitzvot. Okay? Here's something interesting. Studying Torah. Not mitzvot. Mitzvot has its limitations. You cannot do mitzvahs with a non-kosher thing. Right? I will tell you a story that I personally heard. That the Rebbe would used to be a furnace downstairs in 770. And the Rebbe, at whatever time the Rebbe wanted, the Rebbe would give label Groner, Rabbi Groner, who was one of the Rebbe's secretaries, to take a bag and throw it into the furnace. And obviously he didn't look through the Rebbe's bag. So as he's going down one time, he tripped. And out of the bag felt mo fell money. So he, when he took the money on the side, he put the rest of the bag into the garbage, into the fire, the furnace, and downstairs in 770. And then he brought the money back to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe looked at him and said, you went through my bag? That meant his job was over. And uh, he told the Rebbe, no, I fell. So the Rebbe said, okay, I can't take that money. It's forbidden money. We cannot engage with that which is impure. You can only push it away. By pushing it away, you weaken it. But Torah is a different ballpark. What happens when you study Torah? You open up a book and you learn the laws of Taruvot. Mixing milk and meat. You learn the laws of what's kosher and what's not kosher. You learn the laws that talks about what's called stealing and what's not called stealing. You learn the laws of damages. You learn the laws of, of whatever it may be. When you learn the laws of something that's bad, so God has laws. This is what the law is about this and this person. All of a sudden, the entire identity of evil is actually nothing more than the will of God. Because I'm studying God's definition of evil and I'm studying God's laws concerning evil. That means that when I study Torah, I actually am spiritually transforming evil. Because now evil is not an embodiment of a rebellion. It's actually nothing more than the definition of God's will. And God said, in this and this case, you put the guy to death. In this and this case, you have to throw out the meat. In this and this case, you have to give him 39 lashes. In this and this case, he has to give back the money. In other words, all the laws of evil is laws of Torah. When you're going to learn the law of what happens when A murders B, and you're going to learn the entire Gemara, he said this, but he's lying and this and that, you make a bracha. You make a holy blessing. Because right now, you're not engaging with evil. You're engaging with the Torah laws of evil. The Torah's definition of evil. Everything in Torah is the will of God. So all of a sudden evil isn't an evil manifestation. It's nothing more than an expression of God's will. So I'm not talking about doing evil. But learning the laws of what the Torah says is evil. Is a spiritual transformation in what evil is. Because now we're talking about evil as it is in the will of God. But that's only spiritual. You follow what I'm saying? When I learned the laws of non-kosher, when I learned that Torah portion in Re'eh that says that a rabbit is not kosher and a camel is not kosher, and I studied the laws, what does it mean? And what happens if from a camel came an animal that all of a sudden does chew its cud and does have split hooves? So the law is that if it comes from a non-kosher animal, even though it has the kosher signs, it's not kosher. So I'm learning the laws of things that are not kosher. But when I'm learning it, it's all holy. Because all of a sudden, these aren't physical manifestations of evil. Rather, they're the description and the details of God's will concerning evil and what to do with evil. So when you learn a simple law, it's a pasuk in the Torah. Non-kosher meat you're supposed to give to the dogs. Because the dogs didn't grind their teeth and bark at us when we left Egypt. You understand now all of a sudden that non-kosher meat became part of a mitzvah. I'm learning what God wants me to do with it. But that's spiritually. The bottom line is God wants us to physically transform this world with freedom of choice. How do we do that with evil? If all God allows us to do with evil is to be tempted and to say no. How many commandments are there? How many mitzvot? 613. But there's also seven rabbinical commandments. Seven rabbinical commandments. 
mitzvot drabanan. How much is seven plus six thirteen? Six twenty. For those of you who know the num numerology of Hebrew letters, the word keter, which means crown, supernal crown, equals how much? 620. That means that there's something about these seven mitzvot of the rabbinical ordinance which even transcends the 613. So much so that God actually says, More precious to me is their words and their commandments than my commandments. Here's an interesting process. The seven commandments, by the way, are you familiar with the seven mitzvahs? Well, you do one every Friday. Lighting Shabbos candles does not say anywhere in the Torah. It's one of the rabbinical. Netilat yadayim, washing of hands, doesn't say anywhere in the Torah. Saying Hallel, doesn't say anywhere in the Torah. Lighting your menorah is one of those seven. Lighting the menorah and reading the Megillah. It can't be biblical because it happened after, way after Moses and way after. So it's rabbinical. Here is the power of a rabbinical mitzvah. It combines, it contains within it the power of Torah study together with the power of doing a mitzvah. The menorah which is midrabanan, you light it on the left side. Because once you evoke the power of the encompassing supernal crown, not the linear top and bottom, good and bad, but the circular supernal crown, then you can even light the left side. The power of Hanukkah is that through the self-sacrifice of that handful of Hashmanaim against the thousands of soldiers of the, Greek, of the Syrian Greek army, that power of self-sacrifice opened up the Jewish people to be able to receive not only 613, but 620. And once you have the supernal crown, then you can actually even light on the left side. That is, my friends, the biggest secret of Hanukkah. That the menorah is on the left side, it is on the outside, it is lit after dark. Because the ner mitzvah, Torah or, the mitzvah is only a candle and the Torah is the light. That becomes one when you talk about the supernal crown, which manifests itself in the words of our sages. So, a lot has been going on tonight. Let me just go ahead and, and cap it up in just one paragraph. Okay? In closing, there are three deep yet very practical lessons in the secret of the Hanukkah lights. Number one, the war against evil is not just within our thought, speech, and action patterns. We must also set aside time to meditate upon and create a personal disgust and animosity towards evil. It's funny, you know, but my kids, they never, they grew up in a kosher home. They never look in Publix at that big fish tank saying, oh my God, Tate, I wish we can eat lobster. Their reaction is what? Ugh. That's important. It's important that we shouldn't be sitting at a non-kosher restaurant with our tongue hanging out and salivating and wishing. No. We need to take the time to realize Anything that's not willing to be transparent to God, any object, any creature, or any situation. Now, I want to just be very clear here. Do not ask me to explain to you what makes a cow transparent and what makes a pig arrogant. I don't get it. It's spiritual. It depends which light it comes from. That's what it is. Mundane or, or non-kosher, evil. So much so that the Alter Rebbe says that the human being that sins is worse than the non-kosher animal. Because the non-kosher animal is what it is. It was created the way it is. The human being used freedom of choice to rebel. That's even worse than the non-kosher animal. So don't be disgusted by the pig as much as the person who's eating ham. 
I mean, obviously, you're talking about someone who grew up and knew better. I'm not talking about someone who didn't know better. Okay? So number one, it's not just enough to fight evil, but we have to set aside time to allow ourselves to become disgusted by evil. From racism to anything that stands up against God. Number two. We must also evoke God's transformation even of evil. Not just enough that we shun it. We have to actually also bring about the lighting the menorah on the left side. That's the gift of God. That's God fighting our battle. That which we cannot fight by ourselves. How do we do that? This is through our self-sacrifice in our commitment and war against the axis of evil, even beyond our logic and comfort zone. I want to say that again because it's really important in our generation. If we're not willing to really leave our comfort zone for our commitment to the war against the axis of evil, then we don't have that conduit through which to tell God, change them. It's when I leave my comfort zone. It's when, when I'm ready to, even in an uncomfortable situation, speak up about what's going on in the Middle East. And not just make believe I'm sleeping like I don't hear the conversation. I, I just don't want to get into it. These guys are so ignorant. They don't know the history of Israel. They don't even know anything about the peace talks. They don't know nothing. I don't want to have this conversation. I'm just going to make believe I'm sleeping. No. If you do that, don't come back later and tell Hashem, Hashem, why don't you just straighten out these Muslims? Can't you just make them wake up one morning and they're all peaceful? But when we, when we are willing to leave our comfort zone and our personal commitment in our war against the axis of evil, then we turn to God. Because we evoke through our self-sacrifice, leaving my comfort zone. We evoke the vessel which allows to us to ask God, you shine in now the supernal crown. And the last thing, the lesson that we learned today. Many people, always when they ask me a question, but, but Rabbi, it's rabbinical or it's biblical? And the notion is, if it's biblical, then I really can't do it. But it's only rabbinical. Right? I can't eat milk and meat. But do I really have to wait six hours? What's about chicken and milk? Is that biblical, Rabbi, or is it rabbinical? We just found out that the biblical only takes you to 613. If you want to get to the supernal crown, if you want to open yourself up to absolute transformation, to be able to even transform that which is forbidden, you can only do that when you're willing to embrace completely the unbelievable guidance and teachings of our sages. People, thank you. Have a wonderful, wonderful Hanukkah.